Blog Talk Radio. you to Africa on the move. As your host, Brother Africa, it's always an honor and a privilege to come into your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of Oppression. We welcome you today on the 19th day of May 2021 to Africa on the Move. This is a special segment, and we have a special guest today who will be sharing some notes from the barricade. The special guest is Brother Bob Brown, and we will introduce you briefly and shortly to Brother Bob, and he would tell a history, a struggle of our people, and this was basically covered from the period of June the 10th, 1964, to July the 5th, 1969. He writing a book, a memorial struggle of African people as relates to the, a perspective on the wall to prevent the rise of the Black Panther movement in Illinois and the world. He would give a perspective that you're going to be very um, very informing and enlightened to learn the kind of history that has been left out of our history book as relates to our people, historical struggles. So that's on the agenda today. But before we bring in 
uh, Brother Bob, there is an announcement we'd like to make. We'd like for you to write this down to a very important event that's coming up on May the 22nd, 2021. That's this Saturday. There will be a African Liberation Day, Palestine, and Akbar Day, May the 22nd, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. You can go online, or you can go go online to listen to it, or you can call in, and you can do this by going to the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC website, which is www.a-aprp-gc.org. Get the most recent update on the program. You can register by going to the website, and please check out this important event, African Liberation Day. It's all about liberating Africa. Because when Africa is unified, when Africa is liberated, when Africa is functioning under a scientific government, it's a victory for all Africans throughout the world. This, in essence, is what we are talking about when we talk about Pan-Africanism. And we also, when we look at Africa, we understand the values and principles of Africa and its culture. We know that African, a just African will fight against all or any form of oppression, and we don't want to leave out the historic struggle that's taking place and ongoing struggle of our brothers and sisters from Palestine. We will have Palestinians part of this program, speaking on our history, the present position of Palestine, and how we jointly together can work together to overthrow all the various forces of oppression led by U.S. imperialism and Zionism. So this is the day, brothers and sisters, Africans, for you to come home. Check out and participate this year at African Liberation Day, this, this upcoming Saturday on the 22nd. And again, please visit the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC website by going to www.a-a prp-gc.org. Put that on your chart, and um, we'll come back later on and talk a little bit more about that. And we do want to remind you, this is the 19th of May, and this is also the birthday of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. Give praises to those revolutionary strugglers and fighters. So right now, what we want to do, we're going on, before we bring in um, Brother Bob, who will be giving his, his perspective on the history of our people as we relate to a perspective on the war to prevent the rise of the Black Panther movement in Illinois and the world. We would like to play a particular song that represents the aspect of, of humanity when it comes to this whole question of a just human being. This time, Brother Bob took to represent his lynching of his upcoming upcoming blog. And he's also working on a book. We'd like to play this song first and then we're going to introduce you to Brother Bob Brown.
That's right. Welcome back to Africa on the Move, the song's title, The World on Fire. Who set the world on fire? We're going to find out. Right now, what we'd like to do is give you a backdrop on this dynamic, revolutionary, pan-African political organizer, intellectual, Brother Bob Brown. We're just going to read a little bit about his history. Bob Brown is an organizer, a lecturer, researcher, a writer. He is a former member of the Congress of Racial Equality, former director of the Midwest Office of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, co-founder of the chapter, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and former organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. He worked with Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, from 1967 to 1998. Bob was the National Coordinator of Logistics for the 1995 Million Man March. He served as a National Director of Congress from 2000 to 2000 and 2004 election campaign in Alzania, South Africa. As a lecturer for the past 53 years, Bob has delivered presentations throughout Africa, the African diaspora, and the world. As a researcher and a writer for the past 56 years, he has authored and coordinated the publication and distribution of millions of pieces of educational materials and help organize thousands of educational events. We also can say, when you think about Bob Bayo, you definitely can see he is a organizer. And he currently is, is a founding member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. On that note, We'd like to bring in our brother Bob, and he will be speaking to us today on the theme, A Perspective on the Wall to Prevent the Rise of the Black Panther Movement in Illinois and the World, from June the, third, June the 10th, 1964, to July the 3rd, 1969. Right now, we'd like to welcome Bob Brown to Africa on the Move. Welcome, my brother. Brother Lee, good to hear your voice. Yes. Thank you for inviting me on your program again. Africa on the Moon, Blog Talk Radio. Thank also the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, for the contributions it has made and continues to make to the struggle of oppressed humanity worldwide and the contributions that it has made to help enable and empower me to do the work that I am struggling to do for this stage in my life and in the movement. So thank you again for inviting me, for giving me this platform to speak a little bit about what I've done for the last 58 years, my contributions and achievements, what I'm doing at this age, 72 years old, and this stage in my life, and what I dream about and plan to do for the next few years that I'm able to continue to function. 
So thank you again. Well, Brother Bob, we look at your history, and we are very honored to have someone like you. You know, they all say figures don't lie, but lies do figure. And when we look at history, uh, many people have a, a misconception of because someone wrote something in a book, then that's the history of it. And we come to find out that that's not true. And you are a good example of being able to give our people the true history of their struggle and their movement. And you have dedicated your life to do this all your life. And um, we don't know how much more we can say to you in terms of our honor to have you on the show. And one of the things we value the most is getting our people information so they so they can think. And at this point in time, we would like for you to share your perspective, your understanding of our people's struggle movement as it relates to your perspective on the wall to prevent the rise of the Black Panther movement in Illinois and the world. The mic is yours, Brother Bob. Let me start off by just making two clarifications. Yes, we must speak truth to the powerful. And I've been at the barricades for 58 years of my life. And I have no problem speaking the truth to kings and queens, to ministers and imams in any corner of the world. But more importantly, we must speak truth to the powerless, the oppressed humanity of the world. Because if they do not know the truth, if they do not seek the truth, then we'll never be free. We'll never be free. We live under a fog of lies, lies that have been regurgitated and told in every corner of the world for millenniums and generations. Revolutionary intellectuals, revolutionary intelligentsia, in order to distinguish itself from the reactionary and reformist elements of that intelligentsia, must tell the truth. Must tell the truth no matter how bitter the truth may be in certain forms. We must tell the truth because if we do not know what we tried to do, what we did, what we did not do, and why the internal contradictions and the external forces who prevented us from achieving what it is we tried to do, then we will never be free. We will never be free. And even if we momentarily achieve something that approximates liberation, approximates freedom, we will not be able to sustain and maintain and grow and develop it. I've watched over the past through years the growth of the Black Panther industry into a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. And I've watched cartoons and comic characters, superheroes and supervillains 
and I've seen all kinds of madness. The All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, wrote a movie review on the Walt Disney and Marvel Comics superhero, supervillain Black Panther movie a couple of years ago. That movie was shown in more than 4,000 movie theaters in, I forget right this second, the number of countries throughout the world. It grossed over $1.3 billion in the box office and billions of dollars through HBO online, the sale of trinkets and T-shirts and Wakanda jewelry and hats and whatnot. It was a multi, and it continues to be, a multi-billion dollar industry. They're already talking about Panther 2 and Panther 3. And that's okay from an entertainment perspective. But they are simply raping a market, raping a movement which we built, which we built with our sweat and our blood, and they take it all the way to the bank. And they insult us. They insult us in the process of doing it. We did not publish that book movie review what two, three years ago because of a lot of internal capacity issues and strategic decisions and tactical decisions and whatnot. Hopefully soon we will update and GC will publish that document. We've done other movie reviews, most of which are unpublished. For example, Spike Lee did a movie about a so-called black cop in in Colorado, whose first assignment, a 30-year assignment in gang intelligence and Red Squad intelligence throughout the Southwest, and his first assignment was to infiltrate and tape record, you know, a a, a speech that Kwame Ture gave in a nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You know, what history doesn't know is that I was sitting in that room. In fact, I, as, as, as one of the coordinators of Kwame's recruitment drives and speaking engagements on behalf of the AAPRP, I gave the approval at the request of our Colorado chapter for Kwame to attend that event, and I flew out there, and I was sitting in that room too. And we gave a scathing, scathing review of that movie. Unfortunately, again, it was not published. It will be published at some point soon. We have a backlog, a backlog of our work, of our production that we have not published, have not made known. We take full responsibility for that reality, for that potential error partly a result of the conditions under which we work, in which we study, in which we struggle. So right now, for me, I'll be 72 years old on June 5. And so many people tell me I'm old, I'm old, I'm old, and I need to step down, and I need to do this, and I need to do that. They don't tell the Prophet Muhammad, and I'm not Jesus 
to step down. They don't tell George Soros and his Soros Opens Foundation, and, and they don't tell all these other old people to step down. You know, certainly at 72 years, there are people on the left and on the right who have made contributions to the movement much much longer than 72. So when they tell me I'm old, yes, and maybe I will get older, when they tell me step down, I tell them go to hell. I will step down laying in the cast urn, not before. Because struggle is a lifetime, not a nine-to-five job or a 20-, 30-year career. And when we no longer are able to struggle, when we are no longer able to study and to work, we must leave something behind for the generations that come after us. The youth who are living today and the youth who are let unborn. So truth to the powerless is more important, much more important than truth to the powerful, many of whom are more than 72 years of age. One correction with respect to the uh, reggae tune. I accidentally found that tune last week from a reggae group headquartered out of Oakland, California. That song has had more than 6.2 million hits on YouTube since it was put up there two or three years ago. It is a white reggae group. And many of the nationalist forces around me and around the AAPRPGC have criticized me and cussed me for putting a white reggae group up and not one from Jamaica. I don't accept that criticism. I didn't even know what color they were. I don't even know their name. I know nothing about them. But the moment I heard the song, if I had all the money in the world, I'd burn it. I liked it because I am very, very upset with how the movement has been reduced to money and to material things once again, how the monies that are floating through these movements in the United States, especially in order to corrupt and co-opt and contain and crush them. I mean, I've never seen so much money float through the movement in the United States in 58 years of my life. Of course, we get none of it. Of course, we want none of it. We want none of it. We are 100% rugged individualists. Not individualists, in the sense of individuals, and I'll get to that in a moment but in the sense that we can't be bought. We can work with people in groups. We can work against people in groups, or we could leave them alone. Sometimes it's easiest to leave them alone, to, even when they stab you in the back, even when they do things that are not necessarily okay. 
it is sometimes easiest and least temporarily to leave them alone. But we damn shall do not and will not ever work for anyone, for anyone, except the people and except the truth. This question of individualism, I accidentally used the word, you know, let me speak about it in one brief kind of way. One of my problems with the song which was played, it correctly talks about the world on fire. The world is on fire today. The world is on fire today. 25,000 people went to the streets in Chirac, the city of Chicago, a day or two ago in support of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian struggle and you know, against Israel and Zionism and whatnot. 25,000 people in Chirac, which is on fire and is getting ready to burn. Once again, over the question of the reapportionment of the congressional seats in the state of Illinois and other issues that are burning, burning, burning. But the one problem I have with that song, it asked the question, who set the world on fire? And they said, me set the world on fire. Bob Brown did not set the world on fire. Bob Brown, the individual, Bob Brown, the individual, is not telling that lie. It's not, no, it's not about Bob Brown. It is the masses of the people, especially the youth, especially the youth, who have set the world on fire, and the fire continues to burn. It is not Bob Brown or Fred Hampton or Bob Rush or any individual, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, or any individual. They operate within the context of the people and the context of the movement. They make good contributions. They make bad contributions. They achieve certain things. They don't achieve certain things. But they can only, the plane can only rise on the backs of the wing. The leadership can only emerge if you call it leadership, on the backs of the enemy or the backs of the people. So my problem is me did not set the world on fire. Me does not keep the world on fire. But I have been at numerous barricades, numerous barricades, at every stage of my life since I was 15 years old. There are forces I didn't meet. There are forces I met. And nobody knows about that. There are things I did not do and reasons why. There are things I was empowered and enabled to do and reasons why. And nobody has talked about that. Nobody has talked about that. You can't believe the number of people, PhDs and former PhDs and other people who come to me and say, Bob Brown, I want to write your memoir. No. You cannot write my memoir. Why? I have a PhD. I'm qualified. Tell them that's one of the reasons you have a PhD and you're qualified. No, you cannot write my memoir. You weren't there. Participant. You didn't participate. You weren't there. You know, 
you have not done the quality and quantity of research necessary to be an observer from the perspective in which I raise. You cannot ask me to give approval to write a memoir and then you tell me you don't agree with me, which means you're going to write a memoir that is at the minimum in opposition to what I tried to do and what I'm trying to do, more than likely a scathing crusade against it. And you want me to help you write something where you work for our enemies. So, hell no. Hell no. You cannot, I mean, I can't stop you from writing a biography. I don't have that power. I can't stop you from writing something, but I don't have to help you hurt us, hurt the movement, hurt the people, hurt me. I don't have to help you do it. You know, I don't have to give you approval. So finally, several forces told me, Bob Brown, sit down. Write a memoir. There's a difference between a memoir and an autobiography. This is not an autobiography. This is not a day-by-day a day day detailed position of, of perspective of Bob Brown's life of Bob Brown's family, of this and that, the other. This is not a autobiography. It is not a biography of Kwame Ture, of his life, since he was born in 1941, since in 1951, he, uh, 1950, at nine years old, he walked into a polling place in Oxford Street in downtown Puerto Rico, and I mean, I'm sorry, Port of Spain, and said he wanted to vote for Uriah Butler. The nationalist forces in the 1940s and 50s who founded the oil field workers trade union movement, the most radical trade union movement in the Caribbean, outside of Cuba and outside of Venezuela, there's no doubt that the labor union movement of Venezuela, the labor union movement of Cuba is the most advanced the most revolutionary labor movement in at least the Caribbean, if not the Americas and a major part of the world. But Trinidad and the oil field workers union played a historic role in the 1940s and the 1950s, all up to and through the 1960s and 70s. And in the latter part of the years, George Weeks, who, who headed the oil field trade union movement, was one of Kwame's distant cousins on his mother's side. And nobody, oh, very few, I won't say nobody, Jerome T. Luxing and Kafra Cambone and some of the forces down there in, in Port of Spain know it. But outside of that, very few people know. Very few people know the contributions that Kwame's family and he made to the Trinidadian struggle going back to the 1930s and 40s and, and whatever. It's time that somebody tells that. But this is not a biography of Kwame Ture, although I do have the authorization to write the official one. This is only a small part of the movie we have been trying to produce you know, on Kwame Ture and the war against Kwame Ture, and not just Kwame Ture, the individual, but the war against our wing of the Pan-African movement, our wing of the socialist movement, our wing of the internationalist movement, worldwide, worldwide. 
and it's been very difficult, very difficult to get support for that movie, even among so-called progressive and revolutionary forces worldwide. But that's okay. That's okay. Nothing beats a failure but another try. We do not give up our struggle to to write that biography and write that book. But when we saw this latest tragedy called Judas and the Messiah, this 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 history of the FBI informant snitch who helped murder Fred Hampton, I I just said enough is enough. Enough is enough, and I pulled back from my day-to-day assignments. I went off the grid. I went damn near underground. And I work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm literally surrounded by books and, 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 and files, you know, going back 50, 60 years, trying to piece together this book that tells the true story of the Black Panther Party the true story of the struggle to build the Black Panther Party worldwide, at least for the first five years. Lies continue to be told that the Black Panther Party was founded in Oakland, California, October 16, 1966. That is a lie. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, one kitten, one litter of the movement to build the Black Panther Party was founded on October 16th. So Bobby Seale and Ramparts Magazine told us in Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, 1970. What, a couple of years ago, in 2006, the students at Morehouse University called me and the professors called me up and said, look, we want to do a 50th anniversary celebration of the founding of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Can you help us? I told them, sure. Number one, I suggest you talk about the Black Panther movement, not just one party, because the, Panther, the movement to build the Panther Party was never monolithic, never monolithic. At no moment, at no second in history was there one party. There were competing and conflicting parties, even in the same city, sometimes at gunpoint over who would appropriate the name. Struggles to change the ideology, struggles to change an imposed program. It was never a monolithic party. So I suggested to them that they talk about the movement, and they invite six different Factions that represent different elements, different times. You know, long story short, of the six people that I recommended they invite to share the platform, only two agreed. And I was empowered by the All African People Revolutionary Party to represent our faction and Kwame Tourette. So there's a two, three hour program on YouTube. Bob Brown, Kathleen Craver, and Bobby Seale to a packed audience of more than 400 students, mostly men because it was at Morehouse, but 
the Spelman women, the Spelman queens, walked across that street and joined us. And we had, I mean, we had a nice, 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 nice time correcting some of the errors of history, forcing, forcing admission of some of the truth. Since 66, we have been in at least four countries giving a similar kind of presentation. Last February, we were at Erasmus University in Amsterdam, Netherlands, to a 99.9% audience of white professors and doctors. Very few students were there. Erasmus is one of the oldest universities in the Netherlands. And we gave another presentation. We had problems with the PowerPoint, couldn't get it to work. You know, we, we had other issues. But that presentation has been transcribed. And there are people in Amsterdam who are editing it. And when the edit of that presentation, that video is completed, we will launch it on Erasmus University's website if they don't retreat by then. If not, we'll launch it on other websites, and it will be part of a worldwide movement to rewrite the history of the Black Panther Movement Party. Dr. Joe Street at North Umbria University on the border between England and Scotland, two independent nations. Dr. Street, I've been in his classrooms at least for a while, once a year at least, you know, spending a day, two days with him, the students and whatnot, talking about the Black Panther Party. Joe is considered to be the academic expert on the Afro-American movement in the United States during the 1960s and culture. He is known as the regional European expert on SNCC and the Panther Party. He produces PhDs and experts among his students on the Panther Party. He is well-documented, well-written, you know, on, on, on different aspects of the culture of that time, you know, the rock and roll, rhythm and blues, you know, reggae. He knows it. He knows it from the perspective that he occupies. His father was part of the New Left, you know, I, I think my, maybe even the Maoist movement in England and the U.K. during that time. So his father has a history in this movement might be on the other sides of the barricades with us politically, but the history. Joe says that arguably Black Panther history has reached its golden age. Certainly you can say that quantitatively. It is more than 50, you know, it, depending upon how you date it, it is reaching six decades. It is reaching six decades, at least 58 decades, I mean years, of the struggle to build the Panther Party. So, you know, chronologically, yes, it has reached its golden age. If you go, depending upon which research database you go online, Halfley Trust, McFarrell Foundation, WorldCat, just type in Black Panther Party. On, on Halfley Trust, you may get a hundred thousand. I, I was gonna say damn near. I just said it. Two hundred thousand. I don't remember exactly off of memory, but I mean 
citations, some of which are fully downloadable, others of which are you can do online search and they'll at least pop up the citations and the paragraphs and you can cut and paste it into your into your the information is out there. I'm looking at a database of more than six thousand government documents about us trying to selectively figure out which ones we will cite, you know, and which ones we will publish online or in a print-on-demand book. I mean, it's, it's, it's an awesome task. But we intend to write our perspective. We're honest. We're honest. It's our perspective. It certainly cannot be no worse than their perspective. If we make errors, we'll, we will struggle not to tell lies, openly tell lies. They have told so many lies in, in damn near 60 years, they forget the lies. And we are going to point out some of the lies, correct some of the errors. You know, one, one person says this is the definitive history. He's a fool. No disrespect. This Aristotelian bullshit, excuse my language, that says you can arrest the dialectic of history, you can arrest the dialectic of society and of thought, you can arrest the dialectic of revolution, that what he wrote is the beginning and the end, then if it is the end, why doesn't he submit his resignation and stop taking money to train a new generation of so-called scholars? If it is definitive, if it cannot be modified, if it cannot be improved, if it cannot be changed, then why don't he retire? He's 70, he's more than 72. Why don't he stop telling those lies? How do you begin the history of the Black Panther Party in a meeting in Peking, China in 1972 when, when Huey P. Newton is introduced to Chow and Lai? There's no, there's no problem with that being part of the history. In its proper chronological, its proper historical, ideological, and political perspective. There's no problem with that being in the It's a fact. And it wasn't an accident. But how do you start the book? In Peking. Not in Hainesville, Alabama. Started in Peking in 1972, and you settled Hainesville, Alabama, Lowndes County, Alabama, in March of 1965. How do you how do you just ignore seven years? How do you impose us into the Sino-Soviet split? Because that's what it does. That's what it does. It imposes us into the Sino-Soviet split on the side of the Maoist movement, which is not a problem because many of our forces did. We know the history. Robert Williams, for example, left Cuba, went to Peking, 63. The Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, 
who could not get support from any forces, so they went to Peking, Mugabe. But we took a principled position. We agreed and disagreed with both sides. We never chose sides. At different points in history, we were aligned to all of them or some of them, and that needs to be told. That needs to be told, powerless and also truth to the powerful. So what we want to do, you tell me when to stop, Lee, because you know me, I go for 17 hours without a drink of water. Tell me when to stop. Because you got to move the program forward. Bob, we got plenty of time. To do. We, we have plenty of time. Continue to share the information with the people. Okay. First of all, we, we we're developing a database. Memoirs are nice, but memoirs do not have citations. Memoirs do not have footnotes. Memoirs rely upon memory. And sometimes you lie, and sometimes you forget. And as you get older, you forget even more. So while interviews and memoirs are an important technique of, of, of preserving and transmitting history, it cannot be relied upon, certainly not as the sole or the major element in an educational, pedagogical, information-sharing process. It just cannot. We cannot accept this, this lie of objectivity as if the writer, the researcher, is superhuman, unhuman, and does not have bias, and does not have values, and does not have principles, and whatnot. And if some people have the power to impose their bias on history and to and distribute that stuff to my children, to our children, under the guise of education, be it right or left, I got a problem with it. I got a problem with it. I don't care who they are. I'll try to be nice. I'll even keep quiet but I will not be imposed upon and disrespected by the racism from the right or the racism from certain aspects of the left. Not going to happen to Bob Brown, not in this lifetime or the next. So we are trying to, as I said, build a database. We have it. I'm sitting here looking at it. More than 30,000 PDF files, books, and articles, you know, dissertations on my hard drive. Wall after wall of books and, and, and mountains of files and file folders and boxes. And we're trying as best as possible to create finding aids because I got most of that stuff for free. I ain't got no money. They will not prostitute for some. If I had all the money in the world, I'd burn it. I certainly would not sell out to get more. I certainly would not sell out to get more. So we have been struggling to build a database 
and to make it electronic so that we can make it accessible to youth, to youth, to youth, living and unborn in every corner of the world for free, for free, this book. Our priority is to publish it with a new little network called Press Books. The website, our website, will have as its theme Press Books. So we can upload chapters and parts of chapters as posts, and then at some point press a button and select which ones in the order, and it becomes a free book, a free book that youth, that youth in every corner of the world with, with a cell phone or a laptop or a tabloid could read that book part by part by part online, highlight it, take notes, argue with it, fuss with it, cuss with it, but online so that a new generation of digital scholars, I mean, how are you going to train a new generation of scholars, of researchers and, unwrite, and writers using you know, ancient Egyptian technology. You know, before they had printing presses, before they had airplanes and cars and trains. You were in, we are in a digital age. And while the digital age has its problems, its contradictions, they are no more than we had before. We trained them how to use digital. You can't, you can't be a mechanic without a computer nowadays. You certainly cannot be a doctor without digital access to the least you can learn. You don't have to leave your little your little office in, in, in some little village in the corner of Africa, and yet you're not isolated from the most important scientific research, and, and you may not have the money to get the vaccines, but you at least know they exist. You may not have the resources and the legal capacity to bring the equipment in, but you know they exist. You know you know Cuba is one of the best producers of COVID-19 vaccinations in the world because they have a history of, of, of the provision, the, how they trained the new generation of youth, some of whom who used to be children of cotton pickers and sugarcane cutters who are now cutting edge in the medical field in the world. You know, you know, you know China got to be somewhere at the top of the COVID-19 vaccinations and process. They got the most people in the world. They were historically some of the most vulnerable to the COVID-19. While there are numbers of people dying, I'm sure, and catching, you know, the the, the, the pandemic, whatever it is, I'm sure we don't hear about that in the U.S. because of the embargo on news about Cuba and its achievements, on news about Venezuela, on news about China and other areas of the world. But common sense would tell us, common sense would tell us that with three billion people in the world, China got to be doing something, if no more than digging graves. Megan Bobby bags, they got to be doing something. And the mere fact that the quantity of people they have to cure, they have to save, and I don't know the number, they are doing something and they got to be, they got to be 
at the top with Cuba and other places of the movement to, to, to deal with this pandemic. So that, there's some common sense that we have to do. So we, 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 are, we are working with a coalition of, of universities across the world. They don't know what's coming. We're asking those universities to help put together a process worldwide that can digitize this information on the crimes against humanity that are currently being committed today and the historical crimes of the slave trade and slavery. Those are the two projects to produce 22nd century digital scholars. And we're not arguing what their ideology should be. We're not going to impose our politics on them and they're not going to impose their politics on us. Make it available. Make it available to use in every corner of the world. Work out the politics. So, one, we're creating a database and a network and coalition of forces, and we go into there are 227 political entities in every corner of the world, and 125 of those countries, at least African people live in them. African people live in them. So while we want to help humanity, we are going to help African people or die trying in the process. So every country, every country in the world, we are going to them. And we're going to reach out to the progressive and the most revolutionary scholars and students and institutional structures and processes we can find, and we're doing digital research on that as well. We got their names. We got their CVs. We got their email and their Twitter and their Instagram accounts, and we're going to get more. Because why would you write a book and then can't distribute it? And since you're giving away free, who would turn down a free book? You know more than put it on your wall, your bookcase on your wall for decorations. So you can say, oh, yeah, I got that book, even though you may not have even read it in a lifetime. So that's first the database. And it's a project that is independent. While AAPRPGC members like me are involved in it, this is not an AAPRPGC project. It's much bigger much, 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 much bigger. We don't have the capacity to pull it off. Certainly not on our own. So that's one. Two, as I say, we're writing a book. Let me shotgun and give you a brief introduction of the book. Let me just take some notes to encourage you at some point to get a free copy. I read it, cuss it, fuss it, no matter. We want the truth. The working title is Notes from the Barricades. That is the name of the blog I'm trying to launch. I have been at the barricades almost every day of my life for 58 years. And even though I did not necessarily know much about the barricade when I joined it, I'm researching it. I'm trying to understand 
for trying to understand what I didn't understand as a 15-year-old kid who went to the streets of the city of Chicago with the October 22, 1963 school boycott, where more than a quarter of a million of us boycotted school for one day. Chicago has been on fire since at least 1963. Since at least 1963. The leadership of the gangs were in two penitentiaries, reformatories. That's where the gangs were founded in 1959. Blackstone Rangers, all of them. I know the history. I've at least met at least once in my life every one of the gang's top leadership in the 1960s before I met Fred Hampton. And that's part of the book. So Notes from the Barricade is published independently by Pan-African Roots. When alliances were alive, what sense would it make to publish a book in the United States and pay shipping to send it to the Congo when you can find progressive forces. You, you can download it for free off the telephone. or it, it just don't make no sense. In a digital age, to be talking about 40 acres and a mule, why not continents and rocket ships? It just makes no sense from a technological standpoint. And we speak the truth to the powerful and to the powerless. The working title is The War to Prevent the Rise, in quotes, of the Black Panther Movement slash Party in Illinois and the world. Prevent the Rise, in quotes, comes from J. Edgar Hoover's and, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. August 25, 1967, they're launching the so-called COINTELPRO Black Nationalism. We're tired of hearing the academic histories of the COINTELPRO Black Nationalism that don't know what the hell they're talking about. For example, they say that Diego Hoover launched it. Renegade, running dog, out of control, because he was gay. Some of it is true. We don't have to debate that. But Renegade, no, he was not. While the memorandum was written by Hoover on August 25, we can document the LBJ's cabinet meeting of August 2nd ordered him and the other forces to do that. We can document that LBJ and Mayor Daly and the governor of Illinois are ultimately responsible for the murder of Fred Hampton, not just the FBI. We can document that there were at least 10 FBI informants in the Panther Party of Illinois. There were 15,000 informants in the larger movement in the city of Chicago. And we can name some names. 
especially those who informed on me, who tried to kill me. You mean everybody, they tried to kill everybody else and didn't try to kill me? Oh, come on. This is just nonsense. You admit that I co-founded it, but the truth is I found it, and I've been nice. I've been principled. I've been trying to be collective. It's one thing if I elevate people's contributions more than they made because I'm trying to work with them. I'm trying to cooperate them. I'm trying not to be an individualist, and then people lie and exaggerate. They, they exaggerate their contributions, exaggerate their achievements, and hide the truth. It's a difference. And the powerless must understand the difference. How too often people and groups manipulate kindness. Kindness is considered to be weak, even on the left. Even on the left. There are co-entelpos of the right the U.S. government, but they are also COINTEL pros of the left. When governmental forces oppose what you are trying to do and what you are trying to do is correct, what do you call that? And we can do the history. We can do the history back to Frederick Douglass visiting the U.K. and Ireland and the Irish working class of that era, the 1850s, are the ones who raised the money to buy Frederick Douglass's liberation. Descendant, the British descendant, white folk in the U.S. opposed it. Even some of the abolitionist forces who wanted leadership over us fought and opposed Frederick Douglass because he challenged their leadership because he was not only as brilliant and as principled as there were, and there are contradictions there too. We will not elevate him to a saint. But he was equal to or greater than other so-called leadership of the abolitionist movement at that point in time. And more importantly, he was enslaved. Even at the beginnings of his leadership and his career. And the the abolitionist movement in the United States did not raise the money to liberate him so he could freely do his work. He had to go to Ireland and do a UK-wide tour, especially Ireland. And they donated pennies to buy him, I mean, free him, to buy his freedom is what I was trying to say, to buy his freedom. So we're going to do all of that, okay? Let's roll. We're going to do press books, as I said, free books online. That is our major, major thrust. But some people will want a print book. So we're going to do e-books and we're going to do print-on-demand. For those who want to do, who want some kind of a printed or something, something other than a free book. And we will make it clear that we are not selling information. We're not trying to individually or even organizationally make profit over our collective history. We respect our 
personal and organizational intellectual property rights, but we also accept and respect everyone else's. But some people got some money, and some people will want a print book. They can get the book for free and make a tax-exempt donation if they choose to our not-for-profit Pan-African Roots. As a website, is a not-for-profit project that is fiscally sponsored by the Alliance for Global Justice, based in Tucson, Arizona. Alliance for Global Justice is historically comes from the Latin American Solidarity Movement, the Nicaragua Solidarity Movement, the, the independent, you know, El Salvadorian movement that was, you know, not necessarily organizationally connected to CISPUS, you know, some of the early days of the Venezuela Solidarity Movement and whatnot, you know, things have changed and moved on and good or bad changes. But last, you know, I mean, AFGJ has a history, a history, the movement. And we have a history of relationships with them going back to the early 1970s as, 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 as AAPRP and AAPRPGC. We've introduced them to all kinds of movements and groups that are too small and too poor to have their own independent tax exemption and whatnot. We've introduced them to some of the independent Black Lives Matter forces in the United States whom we have minimum working relationships with. I mean, one group in particular, I won't name the name, but hundreds of people were thrown in jail as a result of the George Floyd demonstrations in a particular city. And the demonstrations started at one of our bookstores. Nobody know what we got because we ain't told you. Three or 4,000 people, mostly white, marched from our bookstore on the police station, and hundreds of people were arrested. And somebody gave $4 million for bail bond fund. We didn't touch that money, as poor as we are. Because if we had all the money in the world, we'd burn it. We're not doing this for money. We, they were given $4 million, but they needed a tax write-off. And we introduced them to the Alliance for Global Justice, and they had the tax write-off in less than 24 hours. When IFCO Pastors for Peace temporarily lost that tax exemption for the Cuba caravans, they had a tax exemption for the donations to take to Cuba against the embargo, and they also were providing fiscal sponsorship services for small groups, small church-based groups who needed it to do that and other projects. When they temporarily lost their tax exemption, we helped them get temporary tax sponsorship through the Alliance for Global Justice. Nobody knows what the hell we've done and what the hell we are doing and what the hell we are going to do. Because we don't tell them. And they don't go find it out for themselves. So we're going to do press books, e-books, print-on-demand books, braille books, audio books. We're going to do movies. 
We've been begging people all over the world to help us do a movie on outside the movement. They don't see the necessity for it. They don't see the correctness of it. Okay, we ain't begging no more. We'll do the movie our damn self. We'll get some cheap software, free software, and learn how to put that shit together ourselves. We're not going to beg no more. No more. And we're going to be kind, as kind as we possibly can be, as correct as we can be. And we're going to speak truth to the powerful, and we're going to speak truth to the powerless as best we can. Dedicated to the youth of the world, especially Chirac. Because while we were talking about the struggle to build the Panther Party worldwide, this book focuses, its primary focus is in Illinois. And we're going to talk about that history to build the Panther Party in Illinois. We participated in that history. Not all of it. Some of it predates us. Some of it we inherited the good and the bad. And we'll talk about some of that stuff we inherited and how we inherited it when we, be, when we were appointed Midwest Director of SNCC in September of 1967. We're going to talk about it. And we're going to document it. So it is dedicated to the youth of the world, especially Chirac, the living, the dead, and these yet unborn. Because me didn't organize Chicago. Me didn't set Chicago on fire. We did. We did. The baby boomers of Chicago, born from 46 to 64, we set that town on fire. Every stage in our life. Beginning under our parents, and adult leadership and control, but when we got 15, when we got 16, you know, we moved independent, sometime in opposition. And it is our children, our children and grandchildren, some of them who don't even know who we are, who keep that town on fire. And it ain't just students and the workers and the middle class. It's also the gangsters. How can there be a student movement in a town that has generations of the mob, black and white? It's generational. It goes back to at least the 1880s. There's a history of certain neighborhoods, certain ethnic groups. I mean, Malcolm talks about Bumpy Johnson with the policy stuff up in Harlem. Malcolm McCartney doing his so-called, you know, gangster stage or pseudo-gangster stage. Where you think he got the reefer from? He says he was a numbers runner. He was also a pimp. 
And it's his conversion. It's his conversion from that life of crime. And he was small. He wasn't no big-time gangster. He was small, 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 small. But his family, especially his sister Ella, who was a member of the Nation of Islam before he was, who introduced him to Elijah Muhammad, and whatever you say about Elijah Muhammad, you know, whatever you say, I may agree with some of it. But if nothing else, Elijah Muhammad produced a generation of imams, of ministers, some good, many bad. I mean, no, I ain't got no problem. But Malcolm was one of them. Elijah converted him. Elijah transformed him. Elijah saved him from a life of jail, a life of crime. And if nothing else, if nothing else, if that has any value, why you think the autobiography of Malcolm X is one of the widest read autobiographies of the 60s in the world? Why do you think gangsters do life in penitentiaries in the city of Chicago? I mean, we're not, we're Chicago and the world, Chicago and the United States at least, they are reading the autobiography of Malcolm X because they want to know what happened in Malcolm's life, how he, how he transformed, if you say he transformed, you know. And they hold, they, even... Even if they don't want to transform, they don't want their children, they don't want their sons to live a life of crime, to spend the rest of their life in jail. No good gangster wants that for their sons. It's usually the oldest boy that wants to follow in the dad's footsteps the younger one goes to college and at least becomes a lawyer. Might represent the gang of Sigmiari or might help liberate the gang from the clutches of the criminal justice system. Common sense. You cannot have a movement in Chicago. You cannot, you cannot have a, move, a student movement in Chicago without understanding that the neighborhood is controlled by gangs. The students, even if they're not members of the gang, the school, the elementary school, the high school, is controlled by the gang. And anybody who wants to organize in that area must at least know the objective sociological and political conditions. You must at least know if you go to that school on that side of the street, that's a disciple. And you may roll in there with the colors and the signal. But you better change them colors and that signal by the time you cross that street. We knew, we knew, not, not scientifically precisely, but we had a general knowledge. We had the different schools, the different groups within the broad movement, the broad coalition. Before I met Fred Hampton, I knew and met Jeff Fort, Blackstone Ranger. 
Lahuva, disciple, Pepelo, and Goa. I know them. I'm sitting here looking right now at a book published in the 1980s by Dan Stern, Northeast Illinois University in Chicago, which had just opened up, and a man named Jose Lopez. Jose is the coordinator of Puerto Rican Cultural Center in the city of Chicago, which was historically the Puerto Rican independence movement. One of Jose's younger brothers was part of one of the guerrilla groups based out of Chicago, spent decades in jail, and Clinton exonerated him. We know these people. We know the attempts to work together, the reasons why it was difficult, if not impossible, good or bad. We know this book called The Gangs in Chicago, about four or 500 pages. It has newspaper clippings, but it also has page after page after page after page that takes each police district in the city of Chicago, lists each of the Puerto Rican, the white, the his, Puerto Rican and Hispanic, Latino, Hispanic, the, the white, various ethnic groups, you know, the Irish, you know, the this one, the that one, the other, and and the African gangs. In every in every police district, in every college, in every high school, in every elementary school. It even gives you estimates in the nineteen eighties of its population. It tells you the colors, it tells you the hand signals, and it even gives the count. The leader of this gang was convicted of 20 counts of murder. The leader of this gang was 18. I mean, it's it's a well-researched book on the gangs in Chicago. It was written around the 1980s, but it goes back. It goes back to the 1960s. Really, it goes back to 1950s. The Latin Kings was founded, which became the Long Lords, was founded in 1940 in Chicago. The, 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 the Vice Lords, the Cobras on the West Side, the Disciples, the High uh, Star Rangers on the South Side, they were founded in 1959 in two state reformatories in the city of Chicago. Jeff Fort has spent 10 years as the leader of the Blackstone Ranger gang before he met Bobby Rush and Fred Hampton. Depending on whose figures you use, the Panther Party of Illinois was somewhere between 35 and 500. A big gap in between. And neither figure is documented, at least I can't find documentation for just what people say. And worse than that, what people who had nothing to do with it say and write, and then you believe them because they got a PhD. As if education is not part of the system of oppression. As if the majority of the students and the majority, it it does not obey the class dynamic. It does not have good professors and bad professors, good students and bad students. It is somehow above, above the racial struggle. The, the, the gender sexism struggle and all the other struggles of oppressed humanity. You know, we are to just look at them as if they're gods and God their sins. 
and not question facts and bias and interpretation. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. So that's the dedication, and it's going to rock, Chirac. The dedication page is going to rock it because it's dedicated to Jeff Fort, Malik, and 100,000 Blackstone Rangers today. It's dedicated to his competitors and his enemies, the folk nation and the people nation. Them as we asked them before, do some good for the people. Do some good for the people. We know it's about money. We we know it's about money, and the illusion of power, you know, and fast cars and fast women and whatever whatever your motivations were then and or now, do something good for the people. At least be Robin Hood, you know. Al Capone did his stuff, but he also fed the people. Al Capone fed more children in the 1920s and 30s than we did in the 1960s. Mayor Daley and Congressman Dawson fed more people in the city of Chicago. There were 370,000 students in the Chicago public school system in the late 1960s, at least that amount. The Black Panther Party says it fed 4,000 kids a day. We thank them. Now, who fed the other 366,000? Because we want all the people fed. No small organization has the capacity to solve these problems. They can help. But where'd they get the grits and the margarine from? The daily machine, the churches. Where did they get the pots and pans? Where did they get the tables and the chairs and, and the building and the electricity and the gas? One of the mistakes we do is we tell you what we did, but we don't tell you how we did it. The deals that were cut with the left and the right it leaves us in the condition we are in today. Why is there a peace and freedom party, a green party, a communist party, a socialist workers party, and we don't have no problem. We are glad, we are honored that they exist. We know the contributions, some of the contributions that they have made to the movement. We also know some of the mistakes and some of the errors. We know we were heavily infiltrated. We also know they were infiltrated as well. Truth to the powerful as well as the powerless. But I've often wondered why all these parties continue to exist today and the Black Panther Party does not exist today. And here I'm talking about the old one. The new Black Panther Party is another discussion. An ongoing discussion between me and Malik Zulu Shabazz and other forces with whom they are aligned and we are aligned. I'm not 
disrespecting them. I'm just not talking about them because they do not exist in the time period that we are discussing in this book. We will not write people into history, telepath them into the history, and we will not, not, not deliberately, maliciously keep them out of history. We'll put them in, and then we'll give our honest opinion on why there was competition and conflict and disagreement. They've given theirs. It's time for us to give ours. How we doing, Lee? We we you on time, Bob. You have time. You may want to look at the issue. Yeah, we may want to look at the issue. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. What what you say? I should look at. I think at least talk to the people on your role in the development of the beginning of June the That's where we're at. All right, move on. The mic is yours. The chapters and structure of the book. Part one is called Harbingers and Forerunners. There's a, there's a preface and an introduction. Okay. Part one is Harbingers and Forerunners. Chapter two is a summary of the repression industrial complex worldwide. In the 1980s, the AAPRPGC did a paper. We coined the term Industrial Police Intelligence Complex. I believe it's safe to say we coined that term. I have not been able to document it previous to that. If it includes a series of smaller complexes, the prison, the school, the prison pipeline, the, the, the uh, mass incarceration penitentiary complex and, and the prisoner and political prisoner movement, the uh, defund the police movement. These are the various, con- you know, stuff, the struggle for community control of the police. I mean, it's what's different today than it was 50 years ago. In 1966, there were not 300. There were no more than 300 so-called black elected officials in the United States. There were six black older persons in the city of Chicago. We called them the Silent Six, including Congressman Dawson, who was the historical congressman. I mean, the first African Congress person to be elected. He started out Republican. He shifted over to Democrat in Chicago in 1932. He was in. The first, he was the first African congressperson after Reconstruction, you know, to go to be elected to Congress out of Chicago. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell was number two out of New York. I fought all my life against the Daily Machine. One of my first picket lines was one of my mother's cousins came in one day and got me and said, "Come go with me." And we had a one. I was sixteen. And we had a one-and-a-half-man picket line in front of Mayor Daly Sr.'s house on 12 o'clock on Sunday when the neighborhood boys with their racist stuff were running past us, calling us nigger and throwing stuff at us, including Daly's children, because they were on their way to the White Sox Park for the ball game. 
and Earl and I out there picketing in front of Daly, the mayor of the city of Chicago, and our picket sign said, Dump Daly and Dawson. I have been struggling since 1964 to dump the Daily Democratic Party machine in Chicago. There is no Republican Party locally. There's a few people. A lot of them I know, especially the black ones. You know, but the Republic is a one it's a one party town. And I have been fighting the Democratic Party since nineteen sixty four. The only difference is my picket sign has changed. Dump Lloyd Lightfoot, the current mayor, head titular head of the Democratic Party machine, and dump Bobby Rush. Who's the new Congressman Dawson? And frankly, it's not as good, not as powerful. And I will give that assessment. So one of my barricades is against the Democratic Party machine, especially the one in Chicago. The only mayoral regime I supported since 1964 is Harold Washington. And I helped elect him. I didn't vote for him. Because, frankly, I lived in D.C. and couldn't register in Chicago. I'd be in the penitentiary now. If I lived in D.C., was registered in D.C. because I supported Marion Barry, and I tried to register and vote in the city of Chicago, I'd be gone. And I'd still be sitting there. So I could vote for him. But in, in other versions, we'll talk about that struggle. I did the same thing to help elect. Carol Moses Brown, the first African woman senator in the city of Chicago. They were both Democrats. But at the time I supported them, they were, they were part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, number one. And they were in competition. I'm not sure opposition, but at least in competition to the machine. The machine was opposed to that election. The machine was opposed to them getting that power, that position. So at least up until the moment of the election, I could support them. But when they were elected and they made they made the decision, you know, Harold was still in opposition, so I continued to support him. Even helped organize, put the million people in the streets for his funeral. I at least gave advice and made some suggestions. And my mother and some of my sisters, biological, were some of the first people. They, they, they camped out. They bought tents and winter clothes, and they camped out in the snow for two or three days. They were in the first part of the line. But the elite people came and pushed the working class people out. You know, my mama says, hey, I said, what happened? Why are you back? She said, the mink coat ladies poured out their limousines, swooped past us, and went into the funeral. And then they came out, the people came out and said, there's no more room. That's the class struggle with inside of our community. Even within the context of the funeral. But let, let me go back specifically to the Panther Party. I'm just responding to some of the stuff, some of the barricades. 
part, you know, part one, let me repeat it real quick, the repression industrial complex, because that's what we're talking about, political repression. We didn't have the right to vote for centuries. We, we, we didn't have the right to, to choose the candidates for centuries. They chose which Negro for us. And even when we fought a bloody fight and got the right to vote, we couldn't join and couldn't go up in the, in the Democratic Party in the South. We were limited. There was, a, there was a black ceiling. The Democratic Party in the South, we weren't even permitted to join it. I mean, in the North, we weren't permitted to join it in the South until the late 1960s and whatnot. So that's a struggle. Back to the issue of independent parties. There are many ways you fight political exclusion, political repression. Many ways. There's no one good way. None of them are guaranteed success. None of them. And even when you seize the illusion of power, you're not guaranteed to maintain it. And you're not even guaranteed that your biological children will maintain the same principles that you make. The struggle, the struggle for political power, which has been in every country in the world at some point in time. The struggle to build the Communist Party of Cuba is a glorious struggle, a glorious history. The struggle to seize power, you know, with the July 16th movement and, and, and other kinds of stuff. The struggle to maintain power against the embargo, against the assassination attempts. I mean, Cuba, one of Cuba's beauties is how it came to power. It's the beauty of that it is still in power, the Cuban Communist Party, and its contributions not only to the people of Cuba, but to the people of the world, to the people of the world in so many different arenas, medical, you know, scientific, educational, housing. I mean, we can go on and on and on. But this is about the Black Panther Party. There has been a struggle to build independent Black to support independent black political candidates in the United States since Frederick Douglass in the 1850s. Of course, there's been a struggle for Africans to become part of every party in the United States, every party. And there's a history of racism in every one of those parties and possibilities of at least ethnocentrism and, 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 and elitism even today, we won't dwell upon that. But, you know, don't, don't play me. I know. I know. I might be wrong, but I know. And why not? Part of the struggle was the right to vote in the South. Because in the 1860s, 1860, I mean, 1961, for example, we didn't have the right to vote in the South. Millions of African people. At least, I mean, I got the statistics, at least half of us, and I got the exact statistics, but for now, at least half of us, maybe half of us, Africans in the United States, we could vote in the North, but we had nobody of value to vote for. So that was one level of a struggle. We did not have the right to vote in the South. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee joined. That's a history of the NAACP, the United Negro Improvement Association of Marcus Garvey, the Communist Party in the 30s, 
in Alabama, in Mississippi, fighting for the right to vote, fighting for the right to unionize, fighting against segregation and racism, police brutality and murder. There's a history of that. There's a history of failure. There's a history of progress and achievements all the way up to 1961. The Kennedy administration, who was elected because of the black vote in Chicago, that's what they say in history. Kennedy made a phone call to Coretta Scott King, Dr. King's wife, wife widow, because King was in jail. He made a phone call, you know, he, he he made phone calls to get King out of jail. As a result of that, Louis Martin and the Defendant newspaper put leaflets in the streets in front of churches on Sunday and shifted 7,000 votes, which gave Kennedy, Illinois, and put Kennedy over with the Electoral College. There's a history to it. But Kennedy knew. Bobby Kennedy knew and John Kennedy knew. He could not get reelected in 64 without the black vote in the South. So they financed, they financed voter registration campaigns in the South. It's written. It's written. There's hundreds of books. There's dozens of dissertations. There's versions, truthful, not truthful. It's written. So the struggle for in the right to vote, the struggle for inclusion of the Democratic Party reached a point in history called the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City of 1964. Long story short, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer made the classic statement, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she, she gave the speech representing 80,000 members of the Mississippi Seat of Democratic Party and Johnson called an impromptu press conference because he didn't want that ignorant black woman on television. It's history. It's history. There was a war in Mississippi. People do not tell the full extent of the war. More than one war. They talk about the, the war of the Ku Klux Klan versus the people and SNCC. They don't talk about the Democratic Party and the FBI's war against the Ku Klux Klan. They talk about 500, set up a brand new FBI. There wasn't even no FBI offices down there. They expanded the repression industrial complex. They shipped 500 FBI agents into, in, into Mississippi for 10 weeks. They, they shipped the Navy, the, uh, the CIA, the whole repression industrial complex focused on Mississippi. One, to crush the Klan, and most importantly, to contain and control the African vote. In November of 64, Lyndon Baines Johnson got 52,000 votes. MFDP had 80,000 members, but they weren't allowed to vote. If we had been allowed to vote, LBJ would have got at least 79,000 of those votes. I mean, some of them would have been Republican, because their families were Republican historically, when they had the right to vote. And that generational allegiance doesn't evaporate overnight. But 
Johnson got 52,000 votes. Goldwater got 375,000. And Mississippi, Mississippi's been voting Republicans since 1964, almost six decades. Nobody talking about that. So the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the midst of this summer project, 10 weeks of bloody murder, a week of sellout and compromise at the Democratic Convention of 64, it changed the politics of this country. There's no doubt about that. But not the way we want it. Not enough. They are disenfranchising Africans in the South, across the South tonight. So the Voting Rights Act did not give us permanent right to vote. They just passed some laws in Florida, you know. So we're going to summarize that. We're going to also talk about millennials and generations of rebellion and resistance, revolts and revolution in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Chicago, in Africa, in the African diaspora, and the world. Because we inherit and perhaps continue that struggle, we don't know nothing about it. We certainly don't know the interconnections and the conflict and the tension and the good and the bad. So that's the introductory portion. Part two is called Organize, Organize, Organize. The struggle, the title, the war, to prevent the rise of the Black Panther Party. That's part two. The first chapter within that, part two, I get the numbers mixed up, even though I'm looking at them on paper. It's called the Black Belt Summer Project of 1965. July 10, 1964, Jim Foreman, Bob Moses, and the research director, I'm sorry, I forget his name, a white guy who was was in charge of SNCC's research department. They submitted a proposal called the Black Belt Summer Project of 1965. This is June of 64, June 10, before the summer project of 64 kicks off. This project paper was introduced to the SNCC staff meeting, or maybe it was the executive committee. Again, I'm doing it off the top of my head, but I got the footnotes and the research. I got the minutes of the meeting. And they proposed doing a Black Belt Summer Project of 1965, targeting 650 counties in the so-called Black Belt South, from Virginia to Texas. And the struggle would be to raise the right, struggle for the right to vote because we didn't have the right to vote in those counties. The Voting Rights Act didn't get passed until August of 65. That's at the end of the summer and whatnot. So if the project had been able to move forward, it would have been a struggle, first of all, for the right to vote. It would have been a struggle to build freedom organizations 
all black. With white support, the white allies, but all black for the most part. Throughout the South, parties existed in 1964, but they they were all banned in the South. And even though many of them had cadre and resources and infrastructure and all of that, especially in the labor movement, the labor unions were banned in the South in 1964. It was a non-unionized region of the country. Bloody struggles, bloody struggles to stop the unionization in the South. And the South is not unionized today. There are cities, there are areas, there are sectors of industry. You know, the SEIU had had, had organized the sanitation workers in, in Memphis. There were 1,700 members of the union before Martin Luther King came to Memphis. And they were waging struggles, demonstrations, you know, blah, 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 whatever forms of struggles they used. But the mayor and the city council refused to recognize them. So SEIU, you know, and Bill Lucy, who became Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, cut a deal with SCLC to bring Martin Luther King to town to help force the union, the, the recognition of the union. King was murdered. Twelve days later, the mayor signed the agreement to recognize the SEIU garbage union. The Teamsters had recognized the gar- garbage and Mayor Daly had recognized the Teamsters union in the 40s and 50s and 30s and 40s and 50s in Chicago. My daddy was a garbage man. I'm a, I'm a Teamsters baby. Another barricade. I'm a Teamsters baby. My father, one of the first Africans in Chicago, permitted to drive trucks. It's a history to this. Okay, so in 1964, the SNCC staff meeting is discussing initial proposal to organize an independent political network. They were freedom organizations, not parties yet. They were not under the banner of the Black Panther logo yet. That came a little later. But by the summer of 65, the summer of 65, it would have been just freedom organizations, maybe freedom parties. There are laws and regulations that determine how you move from organization to party. It ain't just something you get up one day and declare and whatnot. The the, the logo for the Black Panther Party, which was borrowed from Clark Atlanta University, I mean the the football team, the wrestling team, the newspaper at Clark Atlanta University is still named the Black Panther. And they borrowed it from Patton's Black Panther, an all-black tank troop who were recruited and trained during World War II who were sent 
to Europe, Patton's Black Panthers, that's what they're called, you know, they had the tank war with Hitler's tanks. And they got reluctantly, the Department of Defense and the U.S. government awarded them medals decades later for their bravery and their sacrifice and how many German tanks they took out. And they helped liberate Jewish people from the concentration camps. Patton's Black Panthers. So there's a history to that logo. But it wasn't officially accepted until December 1965. I was in the movement. I was 17. Historical migration of Africans from Alabama since the end of slavery, the majority of the people from Alabama went to Detroit to work in the war machine, the war industry during World War II when Detroit was declared the arsenal of democracy. Many of them came to Chicago in the 1940s and 50s, mostly from Mississippi came up. We call it up Mississippi. There are more African people whose family was born in Mississippi tonight than there are in Mississippi because the the migratory patterns after the so-called end of slavery, after the end of Reconstruction, you just went up. You just went up. You, you followed the transportation systems, the rivers and you know, the rivers, you know, the, 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 the railroad trains, you know, the, the wagon trains. You just, and people walked, the old Indian trails. That's how they moved from the south into the urban areas of the north, and people don't understand that. Don't understand their history, and some don't want to understand it because they think the movement starts the day they were born and it ends the day they quit or they resign. That Me Tooism. Me, 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 me. It's very, very bad. Very bad. But leave it alone. June 10, 1964, a proposal was submitted for a Black Belt Summer Project of 1965. The proposal was crushed. The proposal was crushed and tabled. And repeatedly at the June meeting, at the September meeting, at the October meeting, at the November meeting, and we'll discuss that. And we might name some of the names of the people who crushed it, some of whom are alive today. Tell truth to them. We might, we will discuss some of the forces Maybe not name the individuals. The individual is not important. It's the forces, it's the reasons why that was tabled, crushed. The Democratic and Republican Party did not want an independent, principled, progressive, radical, revolutionary black political party. The left didn't want it either. We can document the ones who said no black political party. We can use their own documentations. They're not the same as the Democratic and Republican Party. They're not. But I've often wondered why party helped build the Peace and Freedom Party in 1968. They couldn't get enough 
signatures on the petition to get on the California ballot in time enough for the spring 68 elections and the November presidential elections. So they cut the deal with Eldridge and David Hilliard and I don't know whether Bobby was in jail or not, but they cut the deal with the Panther Party, with Kathleen, with, with the forces in Oakland, in Oakland. And they put different people as candidates on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket. Elders ran for president on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket, not the Black Panther Party. Peace and Freedom Party, West Coast supported Elders. East Coast supported Dick Gregory, who lived in Chicago. I was a Panther, but I supported Dick Gregory. You heard that? October 29, 1966, Kwame Ture spoke with Carmichael in his presentation to 10,000 white youth at Berkeley, California. In the first paragraph, he announced in October 29, 1966, he was going to run for president in November 1968. He had a problem with he wasn't born in the United States. He wasn't of age. But if it wasn't for those two problems, he would win because of SNCC's electoral progress and achievements nationwide up to that point. Local SNCC and national SNCC supported the independent progressive political candidates in the city of Chicago from 1962 when SNCC first came to Chicago all the way up to today. I can document that. SNCC, the Friends of SNCC office was opened in Chicago in 1962. I joined CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, in 1964. I know the barricades. As a 15, 16-year-old kid, I was at many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. I didn't necessarily know what I was doing at 15. I know a little better today, much better, because I continue to fight. There's more experience, but more importantly, I read. I research. And a lot of information has been disclosed since 1964, and it's available free online. So there's a chapter on the proposal for the Black Belt Summer Project. And then I'm going to try to move faster. The struggle from July 10, when that proposal was submitted to the SNCC meeting, in Gammon Theological Seminary, which is part of the Atlanta University Complex and in Atlanta, Georgia today. To July 3, 1969. That's the timeline of SNCs and Kwamis and other SNC people and my contribution toward the Panther Party, the struggle to build the Panther Party. On July 3, 1969, Mena McCabe rolled into JFK Airport with Ethel Minor 
and submitted Kwame Ture's resignation from You listen to Africa on the Move, Sunk and Away. We lost uh, Brother Bob. We hope Brown. We hope that he'll call back in. Bear with us. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some music with a message. And when we come back, we hope to have Bob back on the program. You got to listen to Africa on the Move. We discussed with Brother Bob Brown a perspective on the wall to prevent the rise of the Black Panther movement in Illinois and the world. As you know, this technology is technology that we don't control, but we are going to use as much as we can as a tool to help liberate our people. As Brother Malcolm X once stated, if you don't do any, if you are doing anything for your people and doing something of value, paraphrasing, and the enemy doesn't do anything to you, then you must not be doing nothing of value. So anyway, we're going to take a break with music with the culture, and when we come back, we hope to have Bob back on the line. This is Africa on the Move. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. Strong to last through my journey, yeah. Last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon. There where our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Um, we had some technical difficulties. I think we have Bob back on the line. Uh, Bob, can you hear me? Yeah, how you doing? Yes, okay. You can continue your presentation. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm apologize. I'm having telephone problems. One telephone bumped me off. So I've been, I tried to get back on and could not get on. But I have another telephone, which is Pan African Roots' telephone, which is part of the Magic Jack free telephone system. 
So that's the one we're using now. But recently they would bump me off every three to six minutes like clockwork. We think we resolved that problem, but we don't know how stable this telephone connection will be. Okay? Okay, we'll do the best we can, and, um, so you know, it's a struggle. Approach two hours. So you need to tell me the time frame, What you know, how much time we got left. Uh, we have 45 minutes left. And after that, if you want to take phone calls, we have a extension of 45 more minutes. So we still be playing with about an hour and a half. So we can do 15 to 30 minutes or so just to be under the window. You're right. Uh, kind of a lecture kind of thing, and then we can open up for questions. Questions and comments. And yes, because okay. we have some, we have some people patiently that have been waiting. Okay. Yes. Let, let me try to wrap it up in 15, 20 minutes, 30 max. After starting in February 1965, there were five major attempts to build the Panther Party between February of 1965 and July of 1969. Efforts continued after 1969, but we were not a part of it. And as a non-participant, I don't feel comfortable. I certainly have not researched the stuff after 1969, and I don't want to talk about something I don't know. So bottom line, the timeline of this memoir is starts June 10th. I actually didn't become a part of this story until September 67 at the earliest March 68. But you can't talk about my contribution without talking about the larger SNCC, Kwame Ture, and other contribution. Are we clear? So let me shotgun. The, the proposal to do 650 counties in the South, an independent all-black political movement at least, struggling for the right to vote and the right to build the party, was crushed. February 1965, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, and other forces inside of SNCC were able to convince SNCC to make a compromise. They were given the right to organize a pilot project in Alabama, not the whole South, in a maximum of 20 counties in the Alabama Black Belt South, not 650. And there's a whole history to that, and there's a book called Bloody Lounge by Jeffries, I forget his first name, who's one of the best, if not the best, book from a reformist perspective, inside the system's perspective, on the struggle to build the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which became the Lowndes County Freedom Party, which was the first Black Panther Party. So there's a chapter that outlines from a revolutionary, not a reformist, from an incumbent perspective, not a Marxist-Leninist or a radical perspective, from my perspective as an observer, because 
I didn't go to Alabama. Okay? So that's a chapter. Let me give a... I forgot. A cat is... A cat does not have one kitten at a time. A cat has litters. Three to seven kittens per litter. Every two years during childbearing stage. And here we're talking about female cats. Let's be very clear. We're not talking about male cats. A panther is a jaguar, a cougar, a lion with excessive melanin. They're born as part of that litter. But because they have excessive melanin, the outward appearance is black, although if you look very closely, you will see the stripes and the dots. And There's no such independent animal called a panther in the zoological universe. There's also white panthers. There certainly was a white panther party in Michigan in the late 60s on attempt to build one. And one of them... There's also, at least in the movies, a Pink Panther. I grew up watching the Pink Panther movies on television. So there are Black Panthers, there are White Panthers, there are Pink Panthers, at least in the cartoons and in the movies. And there is a process of development, you know, growth, conception, growth, you know, development, decline, death for all living living things, including plants and animals and stuff. There's a, it, it, in, in 1963, as part of the whole movement, Birmingham, the demonstrations and whatnot, George Wallace and the Alabama State Legislature created a, a structure, a part of the repression industrial complex called the Alabama Sovereignty Commission. In fact, sovereignty commissions were created all over the South. They were semi-police, research, legislative structures, like the various structures inside of the Congress, who worked hand-in-hand most of the time, sometimes critical or corrective of the FBI, the CIA, all that other kind of stuff. So in June of 1965, Ed Strickland, who was the head of the Alabama Sovereignty Commission, made a statement that an informant in the movement in Alabama told him that Kwame Ture Stokely Carmichael made a statement in 65 that he was going to go to every major ghetto in the North especially D.C., New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, Watts, and the Bay Area. And, quote, he was going to recruit the toughest Negroes with guns to come to volunteer in 66, a year later, to help the freedom organizations in the 10 counties that existed at that point in time in terms of work. And that's a whole long story how it revolved down to three, and you only hear about one, but I don't have time to do that now. But anyway, Kwame was going to go north to these ghettos and recruit volunteers with guns to come to Alabama 
to help do voter registration and help do security to protect the people who are mostly old people. Most of the, you know, the Alabama Panther Party had more than 2,000 members by November of 66. They had 35 they had 35 full-time staff people from SNCC, including Kwame Ture. They had more than 2,000, 2,200 people who voted for the party. They had more than 900 people who attended the founding convention of the party. So they had somewhere between two in Lowndes County alone, not the other nine or so counties that work was done in. This is not included in that figure and I've not been able to find a figure on that, but I'll find it before the book is published. But Alabama Black Panther Party, in before Huey Newton and them people stuff, you know, had more than 3,000 members. And they were mostly old people and mostly women because that's the nature of who lived in, who, who lived in Alabama. The children were sent off to school or to the grandparents, you know, they they went looking for opportunity and jobs. So it was it's, it's a certain demographic reality. Okay, that is litter number one. The Alabama, the struggle to build the Black Panther Party in Alabama. But as of June '65, when Kwame said he was going north to get the toughest Negroes he could find with guns, that is lit, that is the beginning of litter number two, which is based upon the Friends of SNCC. Networks in the South and in the North. SNCC had so many staff and so many projects that they were working on in the South. And the first effort was to go to those projects, get, get volunteers to come help, you know, for a week, two weeks, a month, a couple of months, or summer, whatever, not to move there and stay, but to just come and volunteer and help for a short period of time and bring your gun. But he also went to the north, and I told you the cities, at least 30 volunteers from the north came to Alabama during the fall of 66 at Kwame's request. One of them was a man named Mark Comfort, who was with the Oakland Direct Action Committee out in the Bay Area, former member of COA. He is the one who brought the Panther Party to the Bay Area. He is the one who told Huey Newton about it and whatnot. So Mark, former military person, he came, you know, with uh, Terry Cannon, who was a white guy who was head of the Bay, it was SNCC's Friends of the Bay Area and the Movement newspaper. So at least two people came from the Bay Area, Mark and Terry. You had at least two people who came from Chicago. Monroe Sharp, who was head of SNCC at that point in time, the Midwest office of SNCC in Chicago at that point in time, and a man named Yari Amir Bobby Walton. Bobby Walton was the number two man in the Disciple Gang. He was a gangster. He had guns. I don't know how many people he brought down to Alabama, but I can document he went down, and I can document who he was. He was the number two man in the Disciple Gang, and SNCC was working with him and the gang from at least 1965. James Bevel with SCLC met the gangs in 1966. Muhammad Ali, on behalf 
Honorable Elijah Muhammad met all the gangs in Chicago. There's a whole history going back to the 1920s or 30s with different social service type groups, you know, the churches, United Church of Christ, you know, the Baptist Church, the, 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 the Jane Adams and, and the social worker movement and whatnot, trying to work with immigrant groups and ethnic groups who were migrating to Chicago, trying to work with groups who could not adapt rural forces who could not adapt to urban living and the traumas and problems that are created and trying to work with youth gangs. Saul Alinsky, I mean, we could just name them. And we had the opportunity in our work to meet some of them, like Dr. J. Archie Hargraves, who is the one who brought King to Chicago, brought Jesse to Chicago. In fact, Archie's second wife, last wife, is one of Jesse Jackson's Aunts. Jesse, it's, it's Archie Hargraves who put Jesse Jackson in the University of Chicago Theological Seminary. It is Archie Hargraves who organized Operation Breadbasket, which became Operation Push and later Rainbow Coalition. It's a whole history to that. Jesse's stepbrother Noah, doing two life sentences for working with the Blackstone Ranger gang and getting too close to them. Getting too close to them. It's a point at which you try to recruit somebody and they recruit you. How is 500 people with five guns going to recruit a gang with tens if not hundreds of thousands of members, millions of dollars rolling through the coffers weekly, and machine guns? What is this myth? This myth of a rainbow coalition. You know, we're going to lay it out cold. You know, we're going to lay it out cold. That song comes from the Wizard of Oz. I call it Judy Garland and the Wizard of Oz. Or singing somewhere over the rainbow in the 1930s. Black is the only primary color that is not in the rainbow. That goes to build a black united front in the city of Chicago. I can document it. I got the FBI reports, the White House reports. The Chicago Police Department reports. And in those meetings, it lists the people who attended those meetings, or who's who of the movement. And for the most part, I was the youngest one in the meeting because I represented the Midwest Office of SNCC. And they had to respect me because they could not play with SNCC. They had children, grandchildren, and preachers, you know, them businessmen. Yes, it's a who's who of city of Chicago. From June, January of 1968 through April of 1968, we were struggling to build a front and how it was corrupted and co-opted and sold out. We're going to talk about that. And this is before a rainbow coalition, at least one year. And the gangs were there. They were there. I remember one day when Jeff Ford came in the room with an empty briefcase, with them old-fashioned big valises, briefcase, and said, with, with his boys in the guns, and said, Arch, I heard y'all got some money. Put our portion in the bag in cash. I remember that one. I ain't been able to document it, but it's a history to this struggle. Every revolutionary movement in the world 
has had to deal with gangs, in a mafia in some form or another. No way that Cuba could have come, the Communist Party of Cuba, the July 16 movement could have come to power without dealing with Meyer Lansky and the casino mob that controlled Cuba. They did not compromise to it. When they took power, one of the first ones to leave was the mob. They got on the airplane. It wasn't as Fidel and the forces were rolling into Havana. I mean, there's a history to it. And how do you think that we do not have to deal with this problem? And we were 18. We were 20. We didn't know. We refused to join the gang. Why the hell would we join it later on? What is the probability that the, that the, Panth- that the Blackstone Rangers will really become Panthers or the Panthers become Blackstone Rangers? It's a question of power and the corruption, the corruptive influence of guns and the corruptive influence of money, which is why if I had all the money in the world, I'd burn it. I did not support this this illusion that somehow the Panther Party is going to organize the gangs. No, I was not a part of that. It was idealism and ultra-leftism at best. No, so we'll discuss that. So you had the Friends of Snake. You had number three was Ram. From, say, June of 66 to May 3rd of 67, you had a coalition between SNCC and the Revolutionary Action Movement, uh, Muhammad Ahmed. They were the black Maoists in the United States, officially recognized, aligned with Robert Williams, who had left Cuba and went to China. We had a alliance with them. And, and an agreement was wherever SNCC had cadre, it was SNCC was not a membership organization. In the 10 cities it had offices in, in, in the 60 community groups that, you know, it had Friends of SNCC community-based groups in 60 areas. They had Friends of SNCC on, in, on 100 college campuses. So within that base, you know, 20 staff in the north, you know, 10 offices, 60 community-based groups, 100 college-based groups across the north, and whatever the ter- whatever the organizational base for RAM, we would separately or collectively build Panther parties. This deal was cut August 28, 66. Letter number four is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which at best starts October 16th or maybe a few days or weeks earlier. And it rose from October 16, 1966 to July 3, 1969. And then you had little number five, which was the attempts to build the Black Panther Party, Black Panther organizations in different countries around the world. Kwame Ture was field marshal, honorary field marshal for the Panthers when he left the country for the world tour. He was the first Panther traveling the world. When he rolled into Havana, when he rolled into London, into Hanoi, into Conakry, into Beirut and whatnot, technically, he was the former chairperson of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and still a staff member. 
and technically he was honorary prime minister of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Certain groups and certain forces around the world said, okay, we support you, we love you, you know, that's a whole history to where that whole attempt, you know, Kwame wasn't traveling the world on no tourist trip. He was traveling the world trying to identify forces around the world who had problems similar to ours and develop some kind of a working relationship with those forces. Much of it never came into being, partly because those forces were crushed or compromised. There's a history to it. And even some of the ones who succeeded, relatively speaking, or whatever, they had differences with us. Ideological differences, differences of objectives. I won't say disagreements because that implies it's diametrically opposed to each other. They weren't necessarily opposed to each other. Some people may think so. I do not. Okay, so this is the structure. Now let me get to Chicago real quick, five minutes or so. When litter number two, Chicago, the Friends of Snick in the North, I said Chicago was one of the groups that sent disciples and other volunteers to Alabama in 66. When they went back, they struggled to build the Panther Party in Chicago, Yaria men. From the summer of 1966 until June of 1968, that's a kitten within that litter. Yari Amir took a contract from a Jordanian liquor store owner to kill a Jordanian grocery store because the grocery store's son had gotten his daughter pregnant. The FBI in Chicago told J. Edgar Hoover, who told LBJ, that because technically I was in charge of the SNCC office, I was the coordinator of the hit and that I ordered the assassination of this Jordanian to avenge the murder of Bobby Kennedy by Sirhan Sirhan. I got it. And Yari, his brother, and one of their one of their girlfriends was involved in accused and convicted and spent a lifetime in the penitentiary. And the history is, Yari told me he was going to kill me also. <laughs> to struggle. So that attempt to build the Panther Party in Chicago was aborted because of Yari's contradictions and problems. Monroe Sharp, who was in charge of the effort to build the Panther Party in '66 in Chicago, he was chased out of Chicago because he was building, he was trying to recruit, he was recruiting youth, high school student and disciple. He recruited Bobby, I mean, Yari Amir. He was trying to build a base precinct by precinct in the fourth ward to dump Alderman Holman, who was one of the silent six. The Chicago Democratic Party, Haldeman, the Ward Committeemen, and Alderman, the Chicago Police Department, Chase Monroe Sharp, and his wife, 
Carol Redmond out of Chicago around January of 67 because they were accused of organizing a Christmas party for the youth in the ward and particularly the youth they were working with. And somebody was accused of smoking a joint, a, 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 a ganja, at the birthday party, and they set Monroe up and Carol up on charges, lies, that they were abusing youth. So Monroe and Carol ran. So that was the end of the first attempt to build the Panther Party in Chicago, 66. 67. Ram had chapters and cadre and members in the city of Chicago. And when Ram agreed to build chapters wherever they helped build chapters or build independent chapters wherever they existed, Ram. Other forces, Nick continued under George Brown, the relationship who took Monroe's place. You know, blah, blah, blah. There were efforts during 67. I think I can document at least three efforts, including Oscar Bound Jr. with the Blackstone Rangers. Uh, I almost call their names. Part of, part of Oscar Brown, Oscar Brown spoke as one, he and his wife, Jean Pace, were part of the entertainment at the February 18, 1967 free birthday party rally organized by Marlana Ron Karenga to free Huey Newton in 67. And when he came back to Chicago, he set up a community-based theater group and whatnot that were mainly Blackstone Rangers. I almost called the brother's name on the tip of my tongue. And they basically did a play with music, sold out audiences, sold out audiences in the ghetto and whatnot, and they wanted to build a chapter of the Panther Party. So in 67, you had at least three independent, overlapping attempts to build a Panther Party in Chicago the continuing SNCC effort, the RAM effort, the Oscar Brown Jr. effort. Oh, and we could document the Deacons for Defense and Justice. That's litter number three. Litter number four is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And those attempts to build the party nationwide is from, you know, October 66, to Kwame's resignation. And one of the places we can document, we can document how many chapters of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense Kwame Ture helped organize. He was the Panther. By September, in, in February of 68, there was only, at best, two chapters, the Bay Area and L.A., and that's the history. How do you move from two chapters in February of 68 to 20 by September? How do you do that? You could do it spontaneously. Somebody hear it on the news and find your phone number or your address and call you. That's what, they, that's what the myth says. But 
we can take those 20 cities and we can go from city by city by city and tell you who the key people were who founded the chapter in that city, the first wave, and what their relationship to SNCC and Kwame Ture was. Jimmy Garrett, who was Los Angeles SNCC and then became West West Coast SNCC, he did work up in Seattle, Washington, on the college campus with the BSU and on the high school, and the Dixon brothers who were working with Jimmy, and they were Seattle, Washington SNCC. They became the third chapter of the Panther Party. So you had L.A., you had you had the Bay Area, you had L.A. Number Two with um, Geronimo and Bunchy and you know all them forces, John and whatnot. That was Number Two, and Earl the Squirrel, who claims to have been the first FBI informant in the Panther Party in the California. That was L.A. And then you had the Dixon brothers up in Seattle, who became the third chapter in March. And then you had a question of each one of the other chapters. You know, you you, you had Chico Neblet and his wife Renee. Chico is with the AAPRP today, living over in Accra, Ghana. Last I heard, you had Chairman David Brothers. You know, and, and and the various forces with whom he worked with, Asata Shakur and and all them other forces were part of the New York chapter. But David Brothers was the state chairman, and that was the second attempt. There was an attempt in '66 in New York with Ram that fell apart, you know, for a lot of reasons. And then the second attempt in New York was '68, you know, with Asata and you know the Shakurs and the various forces that we know, you know, the New York 21 and Daruba and, and and their support base for the December 12th movement. But the party, the second attempt, to, the first attempt to build a party in New York was Ram, 66. The second attempt to build a party in New York had a relationship to Snick and Ram and whatnot. And we can go city by city, city by city. And we can document how many of those 20 cities had their origins from SNCC and from Kwame Ture, including the one in Illinois. Let me do that one real quick and let me stop. I became the Midwest director of SNCC around September 67, acting, acting director. The SNCC student movement, Yari Amir, they were SNCC students and they were gang, disciple gang students at Forestville High School. They had another person named Kenneth Benson, whom we call Hippie, who was the core students <laughs> at that high school. I had been from 62 to 66. You know, the core youth at Morgan Park High School, and believe you me, I raised hell. There's so many barricades. When I graduated in 1966, one of my biological brothers who was younger than me, I won't mention his name because I don't have permission to do so, but one of my biological brothers, four years younger than me, I graduated June of 66. He graduated September of 66. He raised hell. 
He raised hell at Morgan Park High School and all the, all the schools that he was able to get access to. You know, I mean, he raised hell. And he has a history going into the early efforts to build SOBU, Student Organization for Black Unity, and whatnot, and the early efforts to do African Liberation Day. And he wound up being Archie Hargrave's caregiver and his wife's caregiver. You know, so there's a history to this. He was not a member of the Panther Party, you know. He was, you know, he was in and out of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. I don't want to, you know, frame him. You know, he can speak for himself. He can speak for himself much more eloquent than I can. You know, but there's a history to this, a history to members of my family, you know, who who joined the AAPRP and helped build the AAPRP and helped finance it and did work in every corner of the world especially in the struggle to take Nkrumah back to Ghana and in the struggle to rebuild the PDG after it was banned, and especially when the ban was lifted and the struggle to rebuild the party on the ground, you know, the role the, part, the AAPRP in general played and the role my family and other families in the party wasn't just Kwame and Kwame's family. He didn't do nothing without a base of support. His play would have never got off the ground without wind. And it would have never stayed afloat as long as it stayed afloat without people who y'all don't even know and the contributions that they made. Isn't it time for some of their contributions to be told? Isn't it time to write what the FBI and the CIA and the Alabama police and the Mississippi police and the D.C. police, I mean, two of the first members of the such a committee of the AAPRP, at least one of them was an agent from the New York Police Department sitting inside our central committee. Now, we didn't know it. We didn't know it. There's a lot we didn't know. But isn't it time for that to be told? The contribution that Stokely Carmichael, Bob Brown, Tommy Carter, and other forces made to the struggle to build the Panther Party in Chicago. We walked out the door, and this is the conclusion. In December 69, January 69, forces from California representing the Central Committee of the Party in California, flew to Chicago, allegedly to get somebody out of jail. The Minister of Education of the National Panther Party, uh, Masai Hewitt, coming from a speaking engagement on the East Coast, had a gun in his moccasin and was high, and said if, if, if the airplane can take him from New York to the Bay Area, it could take him from New York or Chicago to Havana. And he either said that to the stewardess or the stewardess overheard it, and they landed that plane in Chicago and took his ass off that airplane and tossed him into Cook County Jail in Chicago in December of 69, no, 68. And allegedly, the folks in Oakland, he, he made a phone, his one phone call to Oakland to help, help, help send me lawyers. 
and allegedly Oakland had nobody else to call except Bob Russ, a damn lie. A damn lie. I will document the numbers that they had to call, including the National Lawyers Guild in Chicago and the Communist Party of Illinois. That lie is finished. And they flew into Chicago, and they had a secret meeting with Fred Hampton and Bob Rush and said, you must renounce nationalism, you must declare yourself Marxist-Leninist, you must purge any and everybody who doesn't do that, or we will not recognize the chapter. Long story short, I walked. Every organization has the right, including the obligation, to have order and discipline within its ranks. Every organization, every structure has the right to determine what it believes and what it does not believe. It can do so as a military command organization top-down, or it can struggle with party conventions and work-study processes and whatnot and do it from the bottom up. Every organization has the right to obligation to declare its ideology and fight and fight that all the forces under its structure and process understand and agree with that ideology or that if it is changed, some kind of process of change has to be democratic. It's called democratic centralism. And those struggles can be documented in history, can be documented in history inside of leftist organizations and whatnot, sometimes exacerbated and or created by the enemy, every struggle. So I don't have no problem with Oakland trying to get order within its ranks. Heavily infiltrated by police, heavily infiltrated by rival gangs. And even on a positive notion, different forces having different conceptions. A party is not a black student union. A political party is not a gang. A political party is not the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. They are different, different conceptions, you know, theoretical, practical conceptions on how you build a revolutionary party, a vanguard party, a mass, mass party. There's literature, there's hundreds of years, 150 or more years of discussion and debate around that and struggle and sweat and blood. So they have a right to do that. But where was the democracy? I made my contribution to found it. I founded it. I've been nice saying co-found. I'm going to document how it was found. And who was who when they came in the door. Why not come to me and say, Bob, let's have a discussion about this. They did not. That's okay. That's okay. I refuse to renounce nationalism. I move from black nationalism to pan-Africanism. I refuse to renounce pan-Africanism today. 
We had already met with Secretary Ray and Kwame Nkrumah. We were already moving towards becoming Nkrumah's to Reyes. I was not going to renounce Nkrumahism to Reyesism then or now for Marxism Leninism. I have no problem with it. We can document, we can document how many times we have tried to work with white left groups in this country. Kwame going back to at least 1956 at Bronx High School when his running buddy was Eugene Dennis Jr. and the old man was Secretary General of the Communist Party USA. Our efforts to work with Bill Epton and Muhammad Ahmed and the Maoists inside of Ram. My efforts to work with the very Ishmael Flory in the Communist Party in Illinois, the, the Socialist Workers Party. We did not, we did not get caught in the Sino-Soviet split. We did not try to choose one over the other. You know, we tried to work principally with all of them, and we still do. We still do despite the problems, despite the problems. But if everybody else has their right to tell their story, their way, even if it's not truth, people have the right to tell truth to power. And some of them tell lies to the people. Then certainly I have a right and obligation to write my memoirs. And this is a small part of it, and it's going to be explosive. The objective is not to destroy. The objective is to clear some brush so we can have clear ground, as clear as possible, to build. I do not seek to impose my perspective. My perspective is not definitive. Joe Street up on the Scottish border said that Panther history is contested. He's correct. Bob Brown enters that contest and we're going to win. We're going to set the fire worldwide. Sorry I took so long. All right, thank you, Bob. To our listening audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. This is a special edition of Africa on the Move. And like always, we invite you to join us every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., as we deal with issues and concerns of the Pan-African world. So on this note right now, what we want to do is we're going to take a station break, listen to some revolutionary culture, and when we come back, we have some important announcements from you, and then we will open up our phone lines to those who have been waiting so patiently. We might would like to ask Brother Brown any questions concerning the information that he has conveyed to this program today. So we're going to take the session break, and for those who is online, listen to this podcast. We ask you at this point in time if you could take a few minutes to maybe change over and call in at 323-679-0841 by phone because the next 10 minutes a lot of time for our podcast. We're in, and you can continue to hear the rest of this program if you call in by phone on 323-679-0841. You need to do that when you next 10 minutes. Day, May 22nd, 
organized by the All-African People Revolutionary Party, GC, and our and, allies. And it's correct, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we come back. So let's take this station break, and when we come back, Bob, we will open up to those who wait patiently to um, ask a question or make a statement. And if you want to do that, and if you want to do that, please hit one. Anyone who have a comment or question, we need you to hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Please hit one now, and when we come back, we will acknowledge your last four numbers. This is Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong.
are we? And how do we be? We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. You see, it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child. Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. See, our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear, everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. We're doing a special edition with Brother Bob Brown. He's speaking from Notes from the Barricade, speaking on the wall to prevent the rise of the Black Panther Movement Party in Illinois and worldwide. What we're going to do right now, we'd like to for you to take note of a couple of announcements, and then we'll open up our phone line for those who may have any comments or questions. First, we'd like to share with you that the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, invite you to join them on the 22nd of May. That's this upcoming Saturday for African Liberation Day, Palestine and Nakbak Day. We want to join them from 12 to 3 p.m. For more information to register, we please, we, we encourage you to go to that website and register Go to www.a-aprp-gc.org. Again, www.a-aprp-gc.org. So on this year, African Liberation Day, the theme is One Unified Socialist Africa, One Palestine. The topic we're dealing with in the struggle for national liberation, for Pan-Africanism and scientific socialism, pluralism, neocolonialism, and Zionism are enemies of humanity. You'll have various liberation movements and groups and organizations speaking to you this weekend. So please go to Primary Sources, check out these events, and join them. Also, we'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a community project of the African Awareness Association, and coming up this year, December the 27th to June the 30th, in conjunction with Africa on the Move and the African Awareness Association, there will be a Freedom Ride to Cuba. There will be a Black History and Cultural Education Tour will take place from December 27th to June the 3rd, 2022. If you're interested in going and joining us, please email us at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com, or you can email us at Africa on the Move 2 at gmail.com. So those are our announcements for right now. What we're going to do is go back to Brother Bob, and we're going to open up our phone lines. We encourage those who are listening who may have a question or comment, please hit 1, and we will acknowledge the last four numbers. 
So right now we're going to take our first call. The, the last four numbers are 6052, 6052. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Call 6052. Hello. The mic is yours. Hello, revolutionary greetings uh, to you, Brother Africa, and to Brother Bob. Uh, I have a couple of unrelated questions or comments uh, concerning uh, your presentation today. Based on the uh, on the history you went over, the Black Panther Party was uh, was more of a movement than a political party. Because uh, is uh, you know what holds together is the fact that it has one ideology and it's, and uh you know it, it it tries to you know uh encourage you know that ideological unity among its me- membership and uh my second um uh, comment or question is what uh impact uh, you know, based upon uh, your understanding and experience, did the work of the UNIA ACL have on uh, the uh, the development um, uh, among Africans in Chicago in particular? And uh, I raise that because uh, a lot of times history is presented as a series of disjointed events. And, um, you know, there's an interrelationship among, you know, different events in history. Let me try to answer both of those as quick as I can. One, I clearly tried to say, I thought people heard and understood it. From the very title, we talked about a Black Panther movement. I'm not sure I agree with you. I'm not sure I agree with how you frame the development of political parties. That's one option. Certainly that's the one we're trying to do with respect to the APRPGC. I think history over the last since the first since the first parties were created, it, it, it suggests that there's more different reasons than that. I mean processes by which parties develop and grow or die and they're killed. So I agree with you. The title says Black Panther Movement. But we also, as a lit, in, in, in terms of litters, using a cat, cat model, but we also talked about specific organizations like the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, like RAM, who struggled to build monolithic political parties, ups and downs, and in the case of this, I mean, the, the ideology changes overnight if you have a command structure where the leader, the last man standing, the last woman standing, or the central committee on his own imposes these radical kind of changes. You move from a nationalist to a Marxist to an intercommunalist. You move from a, a, a program that protects and fights around police brutality and that kind of stuff to one that basically is social service oriented, doing grits and margarines. The question is, how are those imposed on the collective and the organization? 
So there are different models. That's my disagreement with what she said. There are different models. And we'll try to lay out some of those different models and show some of those differences and, more importantly, point people to literature and experiences where they can explain that. That's the first question. So it's it was a movement, and there were different attempts to build different types of parties. The party of Alabama is not the same as the party of New York with Ram or the party of Chicago or the party of Oakland, California. And we're not asking people to agree or disagree with one or the other of the model. We all obviously have our opinion. We're just trying to state the fact that there were this, this discussion, this dynamic was fluid. It had its ups and downs, its good and its bad. So that's that one. If you look at the history of the, of the UNIA, you will see that Chicago played a very important role in many different kinds of ways. You will see the role the UNIA played in the streets in the city of Chicago in the 1920s and 30s before it was crushed. It was crushed by the civil rights movement in alliance with certain sectors of the communist movement domestically and internationally, and of course, J. Edgar Hoover cut his bones on crushing the communist movement, the labor movement of the 1920s, the so-called Red Scare, and they're the ones who sent Marcus Garvey to jail and deported them. Chicago has a long history going from the 1919s up to and including today. Today, in the city of Chicago. We can't go through the history. But the UNIA itself, with all of its changes and developments and forward-backward movement over this 100-year period. You also, if you look at the Nation of Islam and you accept the position that somehow it's a spin-off from, it had some, there were some relationships between the, U, the UNIA and the Nation of Islam, and even the Morris Science Temple. If you see the strength of the Nation of Islam and the strength of the Morris Science Temple in Chicago today, you will see directly or indirectly that UNA impact. There is also a small but very vibrant UNA chapter in Chicago today, consisting mostly of older people in their 70s and 80s. You know, a woman named Mama Myers, she's head of the UNIA chapter in Chicago today, and they've played tremendous roles. In fact, with respect to some of the first recruits and, and the first membership into the Panther Party of Illinois, we, we didn't just sit in a room and write no manifestos. We did work. We did mass work. We, we networked. We, we whatever. And part of it was that we were the, some of the first young people to join the UNA chapter in Chicago since the 30s or 40s. When we walked in the door, you know, there, were no young, there had been no young people there for decades. 
Now, we had our contradictions with some of them old people, and, you know, we had our disagreements on the question of socialism, on the question of political party, on the question of primacy of Africa, on the question of relationships with white folk. Uh, we had differences, and we we helped take them out of isolation. That's one of our major contributions. You know, at that point in time, the, the brother who was head of the Chicago chapter of the UNA was also the worldwide president. Some of our people at that point in time are still in that network. Arthur Trotter, for example, who's out there in the Bay Area, you know, he's an archbishop in that movement today and whatnot, you know, working under the, t- the titular head of the UNIA's religious group. So we still have, so the UNIA played a tremendous role. And Nkrumah recognized that role. In his book, he said, of all the literature he's read, the ones that inspired him the most was the book by Garvey. And he named the, the Black Star Lion. But we also are clear on our differences. We don't disrespect them, but we also have differences. Historically and currently, we know the treachery of the common turn. Stalin against Garvey. We know it. We know the role the boys played in having to deport him and evict him. But we want to move beyond that. We don't want to fight the hundred-year war between the boys and Garvey. We've moved past that. We don't want to fight the hundred-year war between the Communist Party of the United States in this early... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.